Good evening. Trump's second impeachment trial comes as early as next week. The first black secretary of defense is approved. Was, is he a threat to civilian control of the military? And activists speak out on a nuclear treaty as, the, as President Biden prepares a war against the radical right. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, January 22nd, 2021. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Friday that she will send the article of impeachment against Donald Trump to the Senate on Monday, triggering the start of the former president's trial on a charge of incitement of insurrection of the deadly Capitol riot on January 6th. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer announced Pelosi's intentions for a quick trial on the Senate floor earlier today, rejecting Republicans' proposal to push it to mid-February to give Trump more time to prepare his case. The Senate will also conduct a second impeachment trial for Donald Trump. I've been speaking to the Republican leader about the timing and duration of the trial, but make no mistake, a trial will be held in the United States Senate, and there will be a vote whether to convict the president. I've spoken to Speaker Pelosi, who informed me that the articles will be delivered to the Senate on Monday. Now, I've heard some of my Republican colleagues argue that this trial would be unconstitutional because Donald Trump is no longer in office, an argument that has been roundly repudiated, debunked by hundreds of constitutional scholars, left, right, and center, and defies basic common sense. It makes no sense whatsoever that a president or any official could commit a heinous crime against our country and then be permitted to resign so as to avoid accountability and a vote to disbar them from future office. When that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John Trump incited insurrection against the United States. Senator Chuck Schumer, Senate Republicans are arguing in Trump's defense that it's pointless and potentially even unconstitutional to try a president after he's left office. But outgoing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says if that's what the Democrats want, the second trial of Donald Trump can begin as early as Tuesday. By Senate rules, if the article arrives, we have to start a trial right then. This impeachment began with an unprecedentedly fast and minimal process over in the House. Senate Republicans strongly believe we need a full and fair process where the former president can mount a defense and the Senate can properly consider the factual, legal, and constitutional questions at stake. The trial will come as the Senate, now in Democratic control, is also working to swiftly confirm President Joe Biden's cabinet nominees and tackle the new administration's legislative priorities. Biden has repeatedly said that he believes the Senate can both try impeachment and move forward. Pelosi said Thursday that it would be harmful to unity to to forget that people died here on January 6th. The attempt to undermine our election, to undermine our democracy, to dishonor our Constitution. Pelosi added, this year, the whole world bore witness to the president's incitement. And another Biden appointee, Lloyd J. Austin, a West Point graduate who rose to the Army's elite ranks and marched through racial barriers in a 41-year career, won Senate confirmation Friday to become the nation's first black secretary of defense. The 93-2 vote gave President Joe Biden his second cabinet member 
Avril Haines was confirmed on Wednesday as the first woman to serve as director of national intelligence. Biden is expected to win approval for others on his national security team in coming days, including Anthony Blinken as secretary of state. Austin had had to first win a waiver of a rule preventing former generals from becoming secretary of defense within seven years of retirement. Austin spoke directly to his commitment to civilian control of the military, fighting the coronavirus pandemic and dealing with white supremacists within the ranks. At the outset that I understand and respect the reservations that some of you have expressed about having another recently retired general at the head of the Department of Defense. The safety and security of our democracy demands competent civilian control of our armed forces, the subordination of military power to the civil. I spent my entire life committed to that principle. In war and in peace, I implemented the policies of civilians elected and appointed over me, leaders like Secretary Panetta. And I know that being a member of the president's cabinet, a political appointee, requires a different perspective and unique duties from a career in uniform. If confirmed, I will quickly review the department's contributions to coronavirus relief efforts, ensuring that we're doing everything that we can to help distribute vaccines across the country and to vaccinate our troops and preserve readiness. We'll also do everything we can for our military families. We also owe our people a working environment free of discrimination, hate, and harassment. And if confirmed, I will fight hard to stamp out sexual assault and to rid our ranks of racists and extremists and to create a climate where everyone fit and willing has the opportunity to serve this country with dignity. The job of the Department of Defense is to keep America safe from our enemies. But we can't do that if some of those enemies lie within our own ranks. For those enemies and adversaries outside the ranks and around the world, we need resources to match strategy, and strategy matched to policy, and policy matched to the will of the American people. Globally, I understand that Asia must be the focus of our effort. And I see China in particular as a pacing challenge for the department. And if you confirm me, I am prepared to serve now as a civilian, fully acknowledging the importance of this distinction. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. As vice president, Biden worked closely with Austin in 2010 and 2011 to wind down U.S. military involvement in Iraq while Austin was the top U.S. commander in Baghdad. American forces withdrew entirely, returning in 2014 after the Islamic State extremist group captured Iraqi territory. As Central Command, Austin was a key architect of the strategy to defeat radical Islamists in Iraq and Syria. And the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki held a news conference earlier today. She also touched on Biden's push to get a handle on the rise of what she termed domestic violence extremism, or DVE. I also have some news to share uh, on the president's response to domestic violent extremism, the January 6th assault on the Capitol and the tragic deaths and destruction that occurred uh, underscored what we have long known, 
The rise of domestic violent extremism is a serious and growing national security threat. The Biden administration will confront this threat with the necessary resources and resolve. We're committed to developing policies and strategies based on facts, on objective and rigorous analysis, and on our respect for constitutionally protected free speech and political activities. Our initial work on DVE will broadly fall into three areas. The first is a tasking from President Biden sent to the ODNI today, requesting a comprehensive threat assessment coordinated with the FBI and DHS on domestic violent extremism. This assessment will draw on the analysis from across the government and as appropriate non-governmental organizations. The key point here is that we want fact-based analysis upon which we can shape policy. So this is really the first step in the process, and we will rely on our appropriate law enforcement and intelligence officials to provide that analysis. The second will be the building of an NSC capability to focus on countering domestic violent extremism. As a part of this, the NSC will undertake a policy review effort to determine how the government can share information better about this threat, support efforts to prevent radicalization, disrupt violent extremist networks, and more. There's important work already underway across the interagency in, in, in countering DVE, and we need to understand better its current extent and where there may be gaps to, uh, to address so we can determine the best path forward. The third will be coordinating relevant parts of the federal government to enhance and accelerate efforts to address DVE. This considered, NSC-convened process will focus on addressing evolving threats, radicalization, the role of social media, opportunities to improve information sharing, operational responses, and more. It was a far-ranging news conference without the rancor and threats against the media of the Trump-era White House. Saki says she plans to meet with, media with the media frequently and to answer their questions truthfully, apparently a big change from the previous administration. One subject on the president's plate, how to deal with nuclear powers like North Korea. The president's view is, of course, that is without question that North Korea's nuclear, ballistic missile and other proliferation related activities constitute a serious threat to the international peace and security uh, of of the world and undermine the global nonproliferation regime. And we obviously have still have a vital interest um, in deterring North Korea, as does Japan, of course. Um, we will uh, adopt uh, a new strategy to keep uh, the American people and our allies safe. That approach will begin with a thorough policy policy review of the state of play in North Korea in close consultation with South Korea, Japan and other allies on ongoing pressure options and the potential for any future diplomacy. So I will say we will, uh, as we have historically, the United States will work closely uh, with partners in the region uh, to determine a path forward and work together on deterrence. And that's Jen Psaki, the new White House press secretary. Another region soon to get attention from Biden is South and Central America, especially Venezuela, a country the United States has over the past four years slammed with crippling sanctions in a failed attempt to overthrow the democratically elected left-leaning government of President Nicolas Maduro. Earlier this week, Carlos Vecchio, the envoy in Washington for Trump-backed opposition leader Juan Guaido, who the U.S. recognizes as Venezuela's ambassador, tweeted photos of himself at Biden's inauguration. The invitation to attend was touted by Venezuela's opposition as evidence the Biden administration will continue its strong support and resist calls by Maduro for dialogue with the United States. A former university professor in Venezuela and an editor of Latin American Perspectives is Steve Elner. He says although Biden has said he would try a soft approach with Venezuela, as long as he supports Guaido, it's nothing new. 
presented your approach because they're based on the fundamental idea that Maduro has to go. And in addition to that, another sign of continuity with regard to Trump's policies is that Biden recognizes Juan Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela, even though Guaido was basically appointed by Trump. And when that happened, which was in January of 2019, Guaido had a position in Venezuela. He was the president of the National Assembly. That's not the case now. Since the elections in December of last year, he is no longer a member of the National Assembly. He has no official position. And yet Biden still recognizes him as the president of Venezuela. Guaido, unlike in 2019, is largely discredited within Venezuela, not only among the Chavistas, needless to say, but within the opposition because of accusations of corruption formulated by some of the leading members of his own parallel government. What is causing the United States to be just absolutely so obsessed with changing the government there? The oil. Venezuela has what most countries don't have the largest proven reserves of oil in the world. The Chavez government, Hugo Chavez, who preceded Maduro, implemented nationalistic policies, nationalistic from the viewpoint of Venezuela. The oil industry was basically privatized in the 1990s. It was called the La Apertura Petrolera. And Chavez comes along and what he did was implemented a policy in which all mixed companies, that is Venezuelan capital, foreign capital, had to be more than 50% owned by the state. The second factor is you had progressive governments that came to power, some more progressive than others, but the case of Lula in Brazil, the case of Evo Morales in Bolivia. But of all those countries in South America and Central America, the most outspoken government in terms of opposing U.S. hegemony was that of Venezuela under Hugo Chavez. Washington was out to get Venezuela. When Chavez criticized the bombing of Afghanistan, that was the beginning of tensions between Venezuela and the United States. It became also apparent under Obama when in 2015 he implemented an executive order which declared Venezuela a threat to U.S. national security. Shortly after that, U.S. companies pulled out of Venezuela, Ford, Kimberly-Clark, and then after that, General Motors. It was Venezuela's status as a very outspoken, very nationalistic, and very progressive government that really put Venezuela on Washington's radar screen. What is it that happened to Venezuela after the death of Hugo Chavez and the rise of Maduro? When Chavez left Venezuela for the last time in order to get his cancerous tumor treated in Cuba. That was in late 2012. He had just been re-elected president. There was sort of a power vacuum in Venezuela. Chavez passed away in March of 2013, and Maduro was elected in April of 2013. So during those three or four months, there was somewhat of a power vacuum. The exchange control system got out of control. So you did have problems. The Venezuelan government deserves some of the blame for that. But the situation was nothing in comparison to the situation today. 95% of the deterioration in Venezuelan living standards occurred during the four years of the Trump administration. I call it a war in Venezuela because there has been military threats. Trump threatened an invasion of Venezuela. There was an attempted assassination of Maduro in public in front of everybody's eyes. There was an invasion of paramilitary forces coming from Colombia to U.S. Green Berets participated and was engineered from Miami. 
There was an attempted coup that was also engineered by Pompeo from Washington. This has been a war in Venezuela with economic implications. Lifting those sanctions would alleviate the problems that Venezuela has to a great extent. The main factor is the sanctions. And once they are lifted, the situation will improve. And that is uh, a professor from Venezuela, Stephen Elner, former professor, University of Venezuela, and editor of Latin American Perspectives. Elner adds Maduro has clearly, pardon me, clearly indicated his interest in negotiations with the United States, and of late has expressed willingness to make concessions specifically regarding the release of several j- jailed U.S. citizens. He's also recently indicated his openness to concessions on the economic front. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The first multilateral nuclear disarmament treaty in more than two decades came into force just after midnight on Friday, hailed by the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres as an important step towards a world free of nuclear weapons. Guterres said the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons also represents a strong demonstration of support for multilateral approaches to nuclear disarmament overall. The treaty is the culmination of a decades-long campaign aimed at preventing a repetition of the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. When the treaty was approved by the UN General Assembly in 2017, more than 120 approved it, but none of the nine countries known or believed to possess nuclear weapons, the US, Russia, Britain, China, France, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel supported it, and neither did the 30-nation NATO alliance. In October, Honduras became the 50th country to ratify the treaty. Today, Cambodia became the 52nd nation to approve it. Seth Sheldon is United Nations liaison on for the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. States, with together with civil society, got together and said, we need to lead. If there's no one who's going to do it from the nuclear armed states, we need to bring about a treaty in a dumb fashion. That's how this effort came about. The civil society effort was coordinated by the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. It basically, in 2016, after a series of conferences, there states got together and agreed to negotiate this treaty throughout 2017. It was adopted on July 7th, 2017, with a yes vote from 122 countries. It has, three years later, received its 50th ratification from Honduras last October, bringing about its entry into force today, January 22nd. Listening to the White House press spokesperson who gave a uh, almost hour-long performance there at the White House press office, and not one reporter mentioned this. The U.S. has not supported this effort and, in fact, has vociferously opposed it under the Trump administration. President Biden, as he takes office, has faced a number, obviously, of great challenges, even with respect to nuclear weapons. We understand he has a lot of priorities. Figuring out our position, the U.S. position on the ban treaty, has not been one of them in this first two days in office. But we think that the U.S. will need to change its position over time and as soon as possible and should realize the way the tide is turning, that in the absence of leadership from the U.S., the rest of the world, the vast majority of the world, has decided to take action. What effect could this have on the U.S., these countries signing on? 
it has obligations um, on its states parties. For instance, under Article 12 of the treaty, uh, the prohibition of nuclear weapons, states parties are required to promote the treaty and encourage other states to join. So one of the most important aspects of the treaty is not only its attention to preventing future harm, but also addressing past harm. There's requirements to assist victims and remediate environments that are affected by nuclear weapons uh, use and testing. Many of those victims, of course, are in the U.S. All the nuclear armed states have tested their and built their nuclear weapons in former colonies and also in indigenous lands of their own. That happened in the U.S. These things build not only law, but also norms and encourage civil society to mobilize around new standards. One of the other big aspects and the effects on the U.S., we see how, how much money of course, and capitalism and the economy plays a role in supporting the industry. Once that changes, we see a lot of change as, as norms shift, incentives shift. Russia, North Korea, China, Israel, these other some uh, public, some not so public nuclear powers. Have any of them signed on? No, all nuclear armed states, this is perhaps the one thing they all agree on, is that they don't like the tree. And why would they? We need to change that, and that's what this treaty will help do. The fact that we think, and still in the press, in diplomatic relations, still talk about this is a nuclear power, as if that's some badge of honor, is something that this treaty aims to change, undermine, and reverse. Shao Selden is United Nations liaison for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And the director of the Los Alamos study group is Greg Mello. He describes the new forms of weapons currently under development in the United States, including the very heart of a nuclear weapon known as plutonium pit. At Los Alamos, they are trying to restart production of plutonium bomb cores, like small. These are atomic bombs of the kind that was dropped on Nagasaki. And those are the triggers for the larger explosions that uh, come from U.S. thermonuclear weapons, or they can be detonated, they can disable the other part of the weapon and just have the small explosion. In any case, the United States does not have a factory to build these. We have thousands of these plutonium cores or pits, as they're called, like a peach pit. But if you're going to make new kinds of warheads, then you need new kinds of pits or more of one certain kind. And this has led first the Obama administration, then the Trump administration to push for building or modifying facilities to manufacture these. So the plan is to rush, rush. The Trump plan was to have two factories because there have been so many attempts to restart these dirty and dangerous factories and they've all failed, partly because of opposition from the public. Los Alamos is at this moment ramping up what would be a $14 billion effort to remodel, build, hire, operate a factory to make a few hundred of these pits. They will cost between 40 and $60 million apiece. And Greg Mello is director of the Los Alamos Study Group. And that's some of the news for Friday, January 22nd, 2021. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineers Reggie Johnson from New York City. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>